Welcome to the Yours in Marketing Podcast. Hey, it's Blake here. If this is the first time that you're joining us on the Yours in Marketing Podcast, do me a favor. Please go wherever you get your podcast, doesn't matter where, and please review, rate, subscribe to the podcast right now. Well, or after the episode, whichever works for you. We're really looking for your support so that we can build this and make it even more valuable for you. So please rate, review, and subscribe the Yours in Marketing podcast. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Hal Werner, who is the Global Manager of Digital Marketing and Strategy at Mitel. He's also a content strategist extraordinaire and a copywriter. And today we talk about the power of content strategy in marketing. We also discuss how you can put data at the forefront of your content. And finally, we talk about how to become a T-shaped marketer, if that's even possible. So stick around. You're going to want to hear this, especially if you're in the process of creating content or copy for your website. Please stick around without any further ado. Here's the episode with Hal Werner. And uh, we're live here with Hal Werner. How are you doing, Hal? I'm doing all right. You doing just all right? <laughs> I'm doing That's great, it. Blake. I'm doing great. Okay, perfect. We'll just kind of get started because I want to learn more about you, want want more people to learn about what you're all about. So let's start with this. What, in terms of all the skills that you have, all the things that make you different, what's your superpower? Like, what's the one thing that you do better than anyone else? I think it would be two things if you ask people. You might get two different answers. And, and one of those is kind of a unique combination of creative and analytical. So usually people tend to, to veer quite a bit one way or the other, but I'm at the same time the guy who can go into you know Google Analytics or, or conduct a searchlight and dig up findings through data. But I'm also the guy who has that agency grade creative content and copywriting background that I can actually take it and turn it into a really compelling creative execution. I feel like usually you have one or the other and those will get you good, but when you can really marry them together, to where the insight and the data and the creativity is all class A, like that's when you're really going to knock it out of the park. So with that in mind, I guess let's, let's talk about now that we know what your superpower is, we'll talk about your origin story because every superhero has their origin story. So how'd you actually come to gain that, that skill set, that unique skill set? What take us through your professional career so far and kind of how you got to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So I started in the really traditional advertising copywriting sort of scenario, right? I got my first job as a junior copywriter at an ad agency. I worked on billboards and TV and radio and print ads and stuff like that. You know, some of it was more retail oriented, some of it was more brand oriented. And so I really cut my teeth just getting the the skills, the writing skills there, right? Writing and concepting. I think a lot of people, when they think about copywriters, they think of just straight content writing. Mm -hmm. But if you have sort of that traditional advertising style copywriter, it actually starts way back with the strategy and the concept, and the copy just executes on that. So I worked at several different agencies throughout the earlier years of my career, and as, as things became more digital, my tasks became more digital, right? I got less TV and radio and billboards and more people wanting to have websites or web pages rewritten. And I went to uh, I went to the University of Texas in Austin, and one of the things they always preached there was never just to do anything for doing anything's sake. They always made us back it up to the business goals. And so I was never really satisfied with just writing a web page without understanding the context. 
And that's been one of my, my things that has guided most of my career since I started catching on to that is context. I wanted to know where people were coming from and where people were going on the site so that I could write that page in the best way possible. And so that started getting me into very informally like information architecture. And so from there, it was stuff like I, I started doing SEO research without even fully understanding if I was doing it right. Because, you know, little bitty agency, a client wants to apply some SEO to their site. And I was what they had. And right. so <laughs> back, back in the days when keywords were still free to look at, you know, yeah. Google Keyword Planner tool, that's how I would do the research. I'd go in, I'd group up the keywords, I would look at the volume and things like that, and, and then apply those to those pages in, in a traditional topic cluster model that I eventually found out was just actually how you do it. Mm -hmm. And so that really spurred me on because I got tired early in my career of this idea of just people fighting over the subjective, right? So you can have situations where if you're dealing with subjective things like creativity, you can just argue until either a popularity contest pops out or someone makes a compelling point or someone just pulls the boss card. And that, that wasn't really a model I liked because I, I liked going back to those business objectives, right? So as I started getting into more digital, I really started enjoying it because you had numbers. You could actually prove that something worked or it didn't work and you could manipulate it, right? You could try something out and you could actually see if the thing made a difference. And so I was really, I was really fascinated by that. So I looked at where I was in my career and I actually got a job as a, as a copywriter as part of a digital in-house team. And that was really cool because I was able to just so closely work with all the other digital folks, the PPC, the SEO, the social media, the design, and we didn't have hard boundaries between our roles. So it was really taking all those things and putting them together in a way that was most effective. So we would often bleed into each other's areas. Sure. That's what really teed me off on the idea of getting into content strategy. So I had a moment when, because I was the writer and it was a smaller company, I touched basically all the communications that went out of that place. So I was talking to PR, SEO, social, all these folks. And it turned out, you know, I learned from my SEO guy at the time that an EDU link was really valuable. And I happened to know from the PR team that we had one of our, one of our higher ups, I think it might have been the founder of the company, going to speak at a local university. So I simply said, hey, PR team, is there any way you can get a little announcement with a link from that ADU site back to us just saying, hey, he's coming to speak? Mm -hmm. And they got it. And that was like my, that was my moment, right? Of realizing how all those pieces could work together. Right. And not just be a little this, in this little corner of copywriting where I had to execute on, on these strategies, but I could actually see all those things coming together and sort of matrix them in a way that would make something greater than the sum, you know, than the sum of the parts. Sure. So you, you kind of come from a traditional background at first, right? Mm -hmm. In marketing. So in terms, you mentioned a couple things that, that are a little bit different, like having the, the data behind. So with traditional marketing, maybe it's a little bit harder to have that data to back up what you want to do. It gets a little bit more subjective or so I guess speak to that a little bit, the difference between or, or what that transition felt like when you really knew like I'm going from traditional and now I'm into digital. What did it feel like in the moment? I was super excited about it, honestly, because I asked as often as I could from clients to try and get quantitative results from the ads I did because I figured that was always going to help me sell the next ad, right? Or, or the next job that I needed. So I was always trying to prove those things out. Always wanted those numbers. When I finally got in house, I finally got to just like take the water hose on the data. 
because we had it all. Our bosses wanted us to have it all. They wanted us to dig in and find out as much as we could to do better. And so that was that was a little bit intoxicating, frankly. And so I, I did end up having another job where I went back agency side, B2B marketing after that for a few years. And I missed the data. And, um, you know, I missed the, the influence of being in-house and being able to influence the strategies at a level that could make a really force multiplier kind of difference. And what I mean by that is you can kind of make incremental improvements or you can make exponential improvements. And a lot of the time those exponential improvements come down to the actual strategies that are being set and not just how they're executed. And so, I, you know, I learned a lot of good stuff at the B2B agency, kept my creativity chops strong because they were, you know, they were really high on creativity, got to brush up on the like messaging strategy chops. But I knew I wanted to go content strategy. I knew I wanted to go client side. And so that's when I picked up and I really made a conscious effort to find that content strategy role, make the jump, get out of the comfort zone, the official comfort zone. It turns out I'd been doing most of it for years. Yeah. <laughs> reconstructing websites and, and informing on digital best practices and things. But yeah, I went, I went head in here at Mitel where I work today. And right. um, it's, been, it's been nothing but learning new skills ever since. Well, let's, let's talk about that, Mitel, then. What, what are you doing now that you're excited about? What, what are the kind of things that are in your wheelhouse now that you, you're starting to build these new skills? Yeah, I mean, one of the cool things about working here at Mitel is that it's, it's a company that's changing enough and it's dynamic enough, not only sort of doing the digital transformation itself, but being in an, in an actual industry that's going under a pretty massive transformation, that there's almost always opportunity to expand your skill set learn new roles, et cetera, right? We don't have a lot of hard boundaries on the roles. A lot of people like to teach. A lot of people like to learn. We're curious. And so I picked up so many near adjacent roles ever since, right? When I first got in here, I wasn't super duper skilled in analytics, but I knew the kinds of things I wanted out of it. I've learned all kinds of different analytical tools much deeper now so that for a lot of these tools, I'm actually, you know, one of the authorities in the company on how to use them. I was all right at SEO before I got here, but I really taken that that skill set to the next level, right? So that comes a lot of with that with that data part, and so I added that data skill, and then was able to combine it with the writing background, the creativity to really create content that was had a compelling angle, but was also driven by keyword data, that sort of thing. Well, so so looking at you, you're more you start out more as a copywriter and lean into becoming a marketer alongside that. Mm-hmm. What do you think is actually easier or more effective, going from being a copywriter to becoming a good marketer, or the, the opposite, beco- starting as a marketer and then becoming a good copywriter? Which is easier? Gosh, I don't know. I've only done it one way. It's hard <laughs> for me to say the other way. I've been a strong writer since I was in grade school, so it's hard for me to really judge what it would be like for someone to try and pick that skill up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the skills I picked up here come in to kind of demonstrate that there are certain elements of being a marketer that you can pick up that are not like a life's work. So I don't know, maybe the way I did it is easier. Sure. Well, I guess it's, it would seem that way since you've lived it. But <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people would probably say it's harder to become a writer. Yeah. But I guess they're, they're two separate skill sets, really, when you think about it. You think of a copywriter, you're thinking creative person. Yeah. When you think of a marketer, you will, you'll often think of more analytical person. Sure. Especially when you get into paid advertising, things like that. It's, yeah. it's all numbers. Right. So, so for you, how did you go from being a creative person and being good at writing to all of a sudden just immersing yourself in data. 
And how did, how did those two marry together? Well, thankfully, it was a gradual change. It wasn't all at once. I know I've talked about the, uh, the sort of copywriting and SEO side a lot, but one of the other things I ended up doing a lot of as I got more into content strategy, a lot of people don't know exactly what content strategy means. A lot of it was formulating strategies around how we were going to tackle content marketing. A lot of it actually got into usability, information architecture, how a whole site goes together, or you migrate a site or restructure it. So I kind of got it in chunks, right? At first, I was requesting data from people. Over time, I learned more about which kinds of data to request. And eventually, I started learning how to look some of it up myself. And the hungrier I got for it, I would take another step out and figure out how to do this thing. And then I'd take another step out and figure out how to do that thing. And so I probably didn't see a lot of Google Analytics for my first many months here, right? It was actually a lot more brand work because we were going through a global rebranding exercise. But now I think I think I probably spend half my day in spreadsheets. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not excited to be in spreadsheets quite that much all the time. <laughs> yeah. But it's the data that you need to create the basis for the, the effective creative. How do how do copywriting and data go together though? Like what how how if, if you're just a copywriter right now and you don't necessarily have that marketer's toolbox in, in, in your skill set what do you still need to know in terms of data? Because you talked about start with the data and then you kind of build out from there and that that applies to copywriting as well. But what does that process actually look like when usually when we think of copy, we're thinking qualitative, not quantitative? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, it, um, it really depends on the specific problem you're looking into, right? If we wanted to go into a really famous example, not necessarily web research, but actually just like anthropological research, we could go back to the got milk example. They actually put researchers into people's homes watching their families to see how they used milk or didn't use milk in order to try to learn something. And what they learned through that was that when people don't have milk, they get crazy aggravated. Everything's fine when you got it, nothing much to report there. But when you want it and it's not there, it feels like the end of the world. And that was the basis for their very famous Got Milk campaign, right? Because they started with that consumer insight And then they built the creative off of that. For us, sometimes it's word choice, right? For any industry, it's really easy to get into the trap of insider language. I remember when I first got into this industry, there was a big debate about call center versus contact center. Call center is a term most of us are more familiar with because it's been around longer. But things like call center or, I'm sorry, contact center or customer interaction center, customer experience are all relevant but they may not be the term that's being used in the public, right? So if you're looking at a really sophisticated enterprise audience, they might be talking about customer experience and you need to use that term. And you can see that from from an analytics tool like a Moz or a Conductor or a Google Analytics, right? But you may also see that if you wanna try and reach a broader market, then you might wanna use call center because that might be the, the term that has more search volume even though you have an academic definition that's a little different. And sometimes you can actually use those to tie the things together. So if you're trying to invent a new term and you're not someone, if you're not someone like HP who can go spend millions of dollars to literally go establish a new term for the market, then you can use the regular term that you've got from your data that shows it's got high volume and you can associate it with your new term that you're trying to use to draw a distinction about you and your services. And then that actually literally frames how you can flow your creative. And I think it helps you 
do your creative in a way that makes sense because people know that familiar term. They don't know your, your new term. So in honesty, your messaging needs to bring those things two together anyway. Right. Well, I guess if you're, if you're talking to, uh, you, you personally, if you're talking to somebody that needs to come up with a new core page or something around a, a specific solution and they're trying to brand it a little bit more uniquely so that they own that, but it doesn't have any volume at that point, what would be the conversation that you would have with that person? Yeah, it had come down to user journeys. So how are people going to get to this page? Is this the page that needs to rank for a specific term? Or can we have other pages on the site that rank for those terms that drive to this term? Is there a way that we can use those things in harmony? Can we have an H1 that incorporates not only your branded product name, but also the non-branded generic term that actually has search volume around it? And use those both in, in that H1 and kind of throughout the page as you're describing things. So there's a lot of options. And I, th I think that speaks to just being creative in general in your, your copywriting. Sometimes the most creative thing is simplicity <laughs> and, and just making sure that you follow logic and common sense, thinking about the customer a lot more than you think about yourself. I've certainly seen that a lot in, in my personal career, just a lot of companies that really try to go after things because or specific keywords or terms because they think that that's what they should be going after. When in reality, customers can be searching something completely different that we need to be aware of. So it, there's there's kind of that that pride that companies have. They need to let go of a little bit, it seems, with in terms of copy. Well, I, I'd love to do kind of a, a thought exercise with you just to kind of pick your brain. So if if I do have a new site that I'm, I'm a B2B leader, I'm coming out with a SaaS product, let's say, and uh, I, I come to you and I say, all right, I need, uh, I need help with my content strategy to get these, the big pages set up, all the solutions pages, and then uh, we'll build out a blog later. But just, you know, just right now we're, we're building out the solutions pages. What would be the kind of questions up front that you would need to ask of somebody that's starting a new site like that? I mean, especially if it's a new site or, or a low, you know, a low domain authority site, I think the single most important thing you got to do is back up to the messaging and define the messaging and the insight is what is the actual customer problem that you're trying to solve. And not the internally said customer problem, but the like real ego-free, something that actually needs solving that a, a real person would tell you. Because that's going to be the, the basis of your first and most important solution page, because that's why your product exists. And if you don't have that, your product might not need to exist. So you start with that insight, you turn it into, into a compelling messaging layout, right? Not a page layout, but you lay out your messaging, your, your primary point and how you sort of want to express that before you get to actual copy. You determine the depth of how deep that needs to go initially, right? It's probably one page to start. You might have some sub pages coming off of it to get into more detail. And I, I wouldn't probably even start on your product page until you have those. Because if you can't answer to someone why they need the thing that you have, then there's a good chance it's going to be a hard sell, especially in the SaaS world. People might already know if you have a really familiar and commoditized product, but if you're trying to solve a new problem like a lot of SaaS products are now, then you're going to have to actually explain what the value is of what you're doing. And I think you said the person would say, oh, well, you know, it's like blogs and stuff that can come later. I would, I would say get the bones of your solution page and your product page out, but don't wait too long because that central piece of content that's going to kind of serve as, as a lead magnet, whether or not it's actually gated, mm -hmm. is going to be the thing that's going to get people to your stuff. You can build your SaaS product in the woods, but if nobody gets the invitation, what's it, what's it really worth, right? If no one right, ever yeah. sees your amazing message and your amazing product, what does it matter? 
And I'm a huge fan of the idea, especially if you have an original problem, if you can show a very tight piece of research around that, sort of the Andy, the Andy Crestadina model, do that piece of original research and then turn it into several hundred pieces of content with all these things that draw inbound links from, from influencers and all that stuff. I mean, I would put that as the third thing, after, you know, solutions page, product page, that, and then from there, you can really get up and going. Do you 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 mentioned up front like kind of what you all, you also discussed with the Got Milk campaign? They really collected data before being able to put that campaign together effectively. We also know that that's one of the most effective campaigns of all time. That that's more like qualitative data, which is probably harder to get than quantitative data. What do you have any like if I'm if I'm on a budget, I'm just trying to bootstrap this thing for free. I'm trying to get customer surveys out there or, or trying to get feedback about my product. Do you have any ways to do that on the cheap? Yeah, I mean, if you ever already have a customer database of current customers, then that's awesome because you can probably use something like a Marketo in order to reach out to those folks and actually survey them, right? SurveyMonkey is another thing that a lot of people use that's generally pretty inexpensive to get out certain size surveys. I've also heard of people using Google surveys where you can specify certain profiles of people without necessarily already having it in your database and ask a, a, more, a more limited set of questions. I think, I think the third thing would be I've seen examples where people might go and get a modest size list and they might actually reach out to folks and say, hey, we're doing this survey, and if you participate in it, we'll give you the results for free afterwards when everyone else will either have to give up their details or pay for it or something like that. So I think that's another interesting interesting way to think about it because that kind of includes them in the research and maybe piques their curiosity if they're not already customers. Sure. Let's get into content strategy a little bit deeper and talk about what that term really means for people that may not be super familiar with it. If you could just give us kind of a rundown and then we can dive a little bit deeper in there. Yeah, I have a particular stance on it that I think is probably somewhat similar to the stance they take at, at the Content Marketing Institute. And I actually wrote a, a post on my blog about why it's so hard to hire content marketers, content strategists, and content writers. So the first thing to note is there's just a ton of confusion around those things. And I think both people who are doing the work and people who are hiring do the typical thing. They try to overinflate the titles mm -hmm. to either attract better candidates or to seem like a better candidate. So I've seen a lot of content strategy roles out there that they basically just want a writer. And I don't, don't think that's right at all. Right. <laughs> so in my mind, a content writer or a content producer, since it may be just as easily visuals or video, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's your kind of execution level. I think a a content marketer or a content planner type. So that is someone who is planning out the specific pieces of an initiative or a campaign to accomplish a certain goal. I think a content strategist, if in their purest, most fundamental form, looks at the big picture of how you use different types of content to achieve different goals, not even down at the campaign or initiative level. I'm talking about things like this year we need to focus on influencer marketing and figure out how we're going to bake that into the entire company because you can't just do that as a one-man band. You sure. need to involve many people across many departments. Or it might be the decision to get more visual and interactive with your content. So what does that actually mean? So I, I guess you, you've also talked about, um, you've talked about how you're a T-shaped marketer. That's That's kind of a 
That's a term that's been out there for a while. A lot of people have wondered if that's very, if, if that's even possible. So I also like, I'm, I've done SEO for my whole career and PPC and email marketing, all those different things. But there's certainly things that I'm more proficient at than others. Do you believe that the T-shaped marketer is, is like a real thing that can happen that you can genuinely have? I mean, obviously it does mean that you have one thing that you're specifically very good at and then other things. But do, do you think that that's, it's realistic to be proficient at, five different things all at once? Or do you think that that's even valuable? I think the T-shaped market is very real. I think it depends on how you define it a little bit, the the, the argument of whether you can do it. I definitely feel like I'm a T-shaped marketer because I go crazy deep on content-related stuff. Started with the writing, got into other kinds of content creation, eventually up into content planning and content strategy. So that's that's the big vertical part of my T. So when you start getting into the wings, then there's there's kind of a fat, a fat serif, right, coming off of that part where you've got things like SEO, because it's still very content related, but it's starting to get more analytical. It's starting to get a little further from the core. And as you start getting out further to the edges of the T, I have a certain level of proficiency of analytics, but I, I'm probably not the person you would necessarily want to put in charge of all your analytics, right? I'm definitely good enough to do what I need to do, and I'm definitely good enough to know the kinds of questions I need to ask the deep T experts on analytics to get the data I need. And, and PPC is kind of the same, right? So that's one of the, the skills that I've added in the last two years here at the company. I am not a guy who you would want to go out today and necessarily personally set up your account and go make little clicks inside of your AdWords interface. But I know how to implement the kinds of strategies coming off of my background in SEO and some of my previous experience doing writing for PPC and doing writing for email marketing that I can guide the creation of those things. And that, that T-shaped marketer, obviously that's worked really well for you in your career. Do you think that when you're like, whether it's people you're hiring or just other people, if somebody came up to you for advice that was early on in their career, would you recommend trying to build your career out like that? Or would you just recommend to somebody just be an eye marketer, just one thing, do it better than everybody else on the planet. Which do you think would be better advice for an early on their career marketer? Personally, I think early on, it's probably healthy to try and go a little bit deep on one thing. Now, you might start out as an upside down T. You go to a company that has a lot of flexibility. You get exposure to a lot of areas and then you pick one. Yep. So the bottom of that T might be kind of invisible and fade off fade off over time. I do think it's hard to go to go start building out the top of your T until you're having that expertise in one thing that you can build off of it, right? Because I mean, if you think about the analogy of building like a foundation of a house or something, it needs to be solid before you can put stuff on top of it. If you try and build a bunch of extra skills on top of a skill that you don't know very well, then it might all fall apart. Yeah. But I do think it's really valuable, especially for, for the younger folks to just be observing and listening just because you can get that context Right. So even if you're not actually building the skill, you can have enough awareness to where you are hearing about those things and you can have a base level of knowledge to where if you ever get the opportunity or the order, frankly, that you're able to move into those a little easier. Along, along with that, so you, when, with you starting at kind of the bottom of your T with copywriting and building your way up all the way into content strategy, you've got that, that steady up, uptick and then you start building out the wings to form your T. But do you think that at this point in your career with somebody that has as much experience as you, 
obviously you're still going to learn new things about content strategy in your career, but do you think that you hit a certain, you've hit a certain point where you can no longer really learn something that's a game changer at this point, because you've learned so much and gone so in depth at this point that everything you learn from here on out is going to be relatively small compared to what you already know. Oh no, not at all. You can always learn something new. That's a game changer. A lot of the things that that I've learned over the past five years haven't actually even been business specific. They've been philosophical things that that you can apply to life or just apply across business or apply across people that fundamentally shifted the way I was able to, to do my job and make me much more effective. So aside from the fact that all of those disciplines are changing at a frightening rate, you know, that, that most, the most humans outside of marketing have trouble keeping up with. Yeah. If you're just kind of the person that, reads or thinks a lot or I'm, I'm huge into psychology, right? So I, I always watch tons of videos and stuff about how the human mind works. I can just learn little tips and tricks there that might completely reshape how I approach a certain thing about content. We just saw one happen recently that I think was probably pushed in part by the vendors who very cleverly capitalized upon the the market opportunity. But for a long time, there was this idea that that content marketing worked to where you were basically creating like a publishing type property, right? You were creating a media property and it was going to have this ongoing audience in it and they were going to come back and back and back and learn you and be you as the expert and evangelize for you and all this stuff. And there are absolutely some companies who have done that, but the ones who have successfully done it are really few and far between. For most of us, what is a lot more realistic and what these folks are capitalizing on is the idea of once you get them in there, don't give them this long, drawn-out journey like we're going to be friends for the next two years and, and sort of kumbaya and now we're a part of your life. They capitalized on this idea of content binging. So don't, don't take these steps and have them happen once every two weeks over God knows how long. Like If people want to go deep based on the Netflix phenomenon, let them go deep. And the people who are going to download 6, 10, 12 white papers and infographics and blog posts in a session are going to be way more likely to convert. So sure. why not yeah. enable that? Yeah, for sure. So I think, I mean, just in the last year, that concept of content binging is a new revelation for a lot of folks that, that is something completely new we can try. That's interesting. I've also on this subject, I don't know if you follow Larry Kim, but he, so he also brought up something called the M shaped marketer, Mm -hmm. which is basically the same concept, but you know, you have three different pillars. Okay. So I don't know if you think that's even possible to go that deep on two, three, (laughs) or even four different subjects. Like, can you imagine yourself with all you have in content right now? Can you imagine being that deep in PPC or that deep in email marketing? I mean, I, I think to me, I think that would probably be more like a shifting T because I think by the time you got enough expertise to build a new deep section, you will probably have been so out of practice on your original deep section that it won't have created an M. It will have just moved over got it. where the base of that is. So, so you don't, even with the expertise that you have in content strategy, if you didn't exercise that muscle every day, do you think it would go away pretty quickly, even though you've been doing it for so long? No, I don't think it's the kind of thing that goes away pretty quickly. When I'm talking about a deep T, I'm talking about like seven, 10 plus years, right? Right. So if I spent the next 10 years of my career not exercising that muscle, I think I could, I think it would definitely atrophy. 
Mm-hmm. But you would have people where if I went to go back and interview at an agency today, there might be people that would have concerns about my, my creative muscle because I hadn't been doing that thing every day, all day, as far as they would consider it, right? I've been doing other kinds of strategic and business things. And the first time I came out of my corporate job, I was actually really worried about that. And I got into the job and I had a little bit of anxiety for the first couple of weeks I was there until I had the chance to put it back to work a little more full time. And lo and behold, I had probably had more pent up than I ever did before. Right. So I think it's possible with a huge amount of time. But I mean, it it would take a while. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, the copywriter, this question Not necessarily just with writing, but in general, how do you go about preventing idea block or writer's block or what, you know, just for B2B leaders listening, if if they are totally in a funk right now, historically for you, what advice would you have for that person? Yeah, I think the best thing that you can do for writer or idea block is, is novelty. So a change of scenery, a change of topic. We seem to have gotten in this weird idea with the modern office. I think it comes from the idea when people worked in factories that you have to be in this one spot mm-hmm. and that's your spot and that's where you do your thing. But I think most creative people recognize consciously or subconsciously that the things around them really give them the sparks, once again, consciously or subconsciously, to have all these new ideas. When you're sitting there staring at your screen and an empty page, I think it's one of the reasons so many creatives have so many tchotchkes around their desk because they're basically idea fuel. Like those things are the little, the little strikers to get the fire started when you don't have something already bubbling around in there. So go to another room in your building, go take a walk, go take a drive if you can. I know not all companies are as open to that sort of thing, but there's a, gosh, I wish I could remember her name. There's a really famous designer for one of the New York design firms. She did a lot of the most famous sort of logos and identity work in the world. And she actually, she basically says if she was confined to her desk most of the day, that she would not be able to do her job. She gets most of her ideas riding around in cabs and doodling on paper or, you know, walking around a park. So I know it's, I know it's hard, but there's even little things you can do to help out with that, right? Take five minutes out of your staring at the blank page, which is obviously not productive, and go read a blog about another subject. I'm a total nerd for things about architecture and city planning, right? And there are certain sites that I go to, and I might read two or three articles, and something in that article about how they're, they're taking on a challenge in one of those fields can spark an idea for my campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's super helpful. I find myself in that spot often. And I, the change of scenery is definitely one of those things that if you're able to do it, just do it without thinking. I, I guess that leads me into talking about a little bit of your, your own process for just writing in general. Cause I, a lot of companies out there want to write content because they know that that's what they should be doing for marketing purposes. They know they should be doing content marketing and they're not, and they feel guilty about it. But what, what's your process if you're in that spot to, to actually go from just saying, I need to do this because that's what people do, to actually get into a place where you have a valuable content resource that's pumping out content that makes a difference on a regular basis for your customers. Sure. I mean, today I'm still personally producing content for my own stuff. I don't do as much of the direct content creation here at the company I work at now. I do more to inform the sort of insight and strategy and research that goes into that creation. So I think... 
One thing I've just come to, and I think a lot of companies may have come to with the glut of content going on, is at this point, I try to avoid creating new content unless I think it actually needs to exist. So I no longer believe in this idea of you need to have a cadence, right? If you make a piece of content that people need, make that piece of content. If you have a piece of content that people will really enjoy, make that piece of content. So if I have an idea that I think will express, I will be able to express in a really fun and unique way that will bring light to people's days, maybe make them feel a little more related to, a little more valued, a little more understood. That's one of the things that I'll, that I'll use to help determine if I should create it or not. And of course, the idea that if I believe I have a unique insight on the topic or a way to get people to the topic that they haven't seen before. There's a lot of topics. Why is this thing important to do? Why should you do this? I think a lot of those can be easily ignored. But if sometimes if you frame a topic in a way that actually relates back to people, you can get them to pay attention to that topic when they might not otherwise have. So, so according to you, right now at this point, after all that you've seen, it's probably actually better to just go after quality pieces over quantity pieces, obviously. And then look, you mentioned month, looking at monthly data as one of those key things, one of the key factors that you can look at when you're looking at what topics to write about. But ultimately, would, you wouldn't necessarily recommend taking that, that action anymore. You would look at more... What, does, what do we actually need to create that will be beneficial to customers? And then trying to find keywords or, or topics that'll fit that after the fact. Well, I actually think that looking at your data regularly can help reveal those things. So we did, I did a blog analysis at one point because I really wanted to know what type of blogs are actually driving our traffic. Mm-hmm. We're probably like most companies in that you look at, if you look at the curve, you see about 5, 10, 20% of the blogs producing 80% of the traffic, right? It's one of those classic 10, 90, 80, 20 kind of things. Well, for goodness sake, like what's the 20% that's producing 80, right? And so you look at those posts month to month and you see a really strong recurring pattern. If you have if you have enough content, that's one of the advantages of if you have been on this model where you just create, create, create for long enough that you can actually look and see which one of these are really doing it, which ones are not. And the ones the ones that are really doing it, you can create more stuff like that. And the ones that are not is you can create less stuff like that. The good news is the ones that, that are being successful are probably successful because they're providing actual value. And that's where I guess the kind of two things are, are interwoven, right? Is that idea that the value a lot of time is reflected in the kind of traffic you're going to get because those are going to be the things that people are going to link to. Those are going to be the things that people share. Those are going to be the things that are going to send search engines, the engagement metrics about time on page and bounce rate and all that stuff to tell it this is a good page. It helps it rank higher. That helps reinforce the traffic. Got it. So ultimately, at, at the end of this all, if you had one bit of expert advice or, or like a, a secret, if you just had a secret that you could tell people about what makes content creation or you know, in your strategy, what can help you separate yourself from the rest, what would be that expert secret? I'd probably, I'd probably say it in two statements. One is data over dogma, and that is let go of the ego and actually find out what's real because it's usually counterintuitive. And the other is it's got to be based on an insight. If you don't have an insight, and I mean an actual strong insight about your customer, then you probably shouldn't make the thing. We used to have it in our, in our blog template. What does the customer feel about this topic today? How should the customer feel about this topic after they've consumed this piece of content? 
that's, that's a really helpful set of questions to help you understand if the content you're creating is actually doing something for the customer or doing something for you. Because I've seen a lot of companies that will be totally happy to give you a brief with a customer insight. Mm -hmm. And the customer insight will be, people don't know about our amazing product. What do we need to accomplish? People need to know about our amazing product, so they buy our amazing product. That's not an insight, right? It has to be about the customer in an authentic way. And the more that you, as a, as a company or an individual, are in that, in that insight statement, the less likely it is to be valid. What percentage of companies realistically right now do you think have a legitimately good content strategy? Gosh, that's hard. I mean, I say it's hard because there's so many companies, but I'm also encouraged because there are enough companies out there to do it that you can mention a bunch of them. I would, I would probably say maybe 10% really have that next level, like could be a media property kind of content strategy. And the rest are just falling by the wayside. <laughs> no, they're not falling by the wayside. There's a lot of companies that, that I think kind of fall in the middle. They're doing solid stuff. They're doing stuff that's kind of useful or sometimes useful. And, you know, they do a lot of the right things. They do some research. But it's really hard to cut out enough of the, uh, to separate out enough of the chaff to, to only be left with the really gold stuff, right? A lot of the time there's a lot of that, that sort of nonsense mixed in there that you just have to do day to day. And, and sometimes you're part of the way there, but you're not all the way there. I mean, I can admit it myself, right? A lot of the time I'd have to do keyword research type content and it might not be based on a, a deep customer insight. I won't pretend everything that I do is just another piece of gold. So what, what is, uh, I guess with my last question for you here, what would be your all-time favorite piece that you've ever created of content? Oh gosh, that's really hard. We had a couple of them that we, that we did here at Mitel. We did a couple of contests with the Spiceworks community. So one of our main audiences are IT buyers. And so the Spiceworks community is, for anyone who spends time in SaaS, you know, that's a huge IT community, as well as they've got some products and other things going on. And I was able to use sort of a formula that I developed that I've been wanting to do sort of a blog post or video about. But, but I had this sort of formula that had to do with a combination of the customer insight, the audience relevance, and like pop culture fun crossover and like prizes that really appealed to the nerddom of that particular audience to, to create interactive content that got people interested in what we were talking about. There was a couple of them. There was, there was a zombie quiz that had to do with disaster recovery. So there was <laughs> a quiz you could take about the idea of if your data center was attacked by the zombie apocalypse, like what would your how, how prepared would you be with your data? You know, your sort of failover capabilities. So we asked a bunch of questions in that really entertaining way. So there was a fun art style to it. Zombies were really in the zeitgeist at the time we did that contest. So it was very much within the cultural deal. And then we even had a prize that was related to that theme. It was like a go bag or something like that that you could win by participating in this contest. And I won't go through all the other contests, you know, because we've got limited time. But... Um, they were all like that, right? There was some aspect of fun. There was a deep aspect of audience relevance to a specific problem that they needed to address that was also relevant to our business goals. And that's why all those contests that we did, they saw three times the two to three times the average engagement of other contests on the site, 
Most of them became trending topics in the community, and most of them drew two to three times as many entries, henceforth lead submissions, as did any of those, any of their traditional benchmarks. That's interesting. Well, my tell is, is just like business phone systems, right? So it's not like, it's not necessarily what you would think would be such a, a fun thing to, to write content for. But I think that speaks to the fact that a lot of businesses, whether you're B2B or whatever, and whether you think your brand is fun or outgoing, or if it's just, you, you think it's so professional, there is room for creativity and outside of the box thinking across the board in digital marketing. And I think a lot of people are certainly fra- afraid to take that step in that direction. But given given what you're a content strategist and you've been doing this for a long time, and if those are the things that stick out in your mind as, as being the most enjoyable, the things you're, you're proud of the most in terms of content creation, I think that, that that speaks to the idea that more people need to be willing to step into that creative zone in terms of their content. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to just to riff on that for a minute, I've actually spent most of my career in what would be considered boring industries. Right. I worked in retail electricity. I've worked with a lot of like banking and credit unions. So checking accounts and things that are normally very conservative. Mm-hmm. I spent time at a B2B agency where we primarily worked on industrial clients. So things like mechanical parts and solvents and things like that. And you know, I really did come to the conclusion, and that's actually a blog post I have written today, the idea that there's no such thing as a boring industry. It's only as boring as you make it. And there was actually a great speaker at MozCon recently, Simmons, who, who said that same thing. You know, there's no boring industries. There's only boring marketers. And I kind of want to cast cast dispersions on people like that just because I think a lot of the times the, the marketers want to make stuff that's really interesting and really fun, but their company, they, at an organizational level, they might need to get the courage to do that stuff. And the truth is, every day, at the end of the day, when people, when people are doing stuff for, for business, they're still people. They still watch shows, right? You're not just competing for their attention with the other B2B SaaS people in your category. You're competing with them watching their favorite show. You're competing them with them looking at, at satisfying memes of people power-washing decks. Mm-hmm. So if you don't capture them at that human level where you can capture them even if it's not a B2B thing, then I think it's going to be hard. But if you do, they will reward you handsomely because I've almost always seen the results of those things perform way better than just the status quo. I I would love to ask you some unrelated rapid fire questions if you're down for that. Yeah, let me get a drink of water here just so I make sure I'm ready for the rapid fire. Let's do it. (laughs) When you think of the word successful, who's the first person that comes to mind? Joe Polizzi. Why? He created an entirely new practice of marketing from the ground up by noticing the way, by noticing a customer insight. What is something that you believe, but that other people might think is kind of insane? Well, I think the one we just discussed that B2B marketing can be fun. Boring industries can be fun. And it's always a personal choice as to how fun you want to be with it. What's a common misconception that people have about you? I don't know if it's a misconception, but I typically come off as very pensive and a lot of the time sort of academic. So I think a lot of people might be surprised that in my entertainment, I kind of throw caution to the wind. I love cheesy action movies, anything by the, you know, with Jason Statham or The Rock. And when it comes to games, I love stuff like Titanfall where you can just jump in and shoot stuff and not think too much. <laughs> do, you, do you have any deep regret thus far in your life? Hmm. I think probably not being quite as adventurous early in my career 
I had to focus on financial stability early in my career, and I didn't get too far from home. And so it, I think I really would have been cool to strike out to a whole another city far away and, and really take a shot at something bigger. Do you have a book that you give, a re- give away regularly as a president or one that specifically has impacted you significantly? I really enjoy Hey Whipple, Squeeze This. It's sort of an old school copywriting related book, but a lot of the principles are very timeless about human psychology. Interesting. And who's that by? Gosh, I'd have to go look at the the author. It's been a minute since I read it. (laughs) Okay, this is the most important question that I've asked you this whole interview. If I were to tell you right now that I'm a movie director and I want to cast you in my movie about your life, what genre would the movie of your life be about? Or or what what genre would it be? And who would play you? I would say one of of two people in two types of movies. Either action with Jason Statham, because I love him and I think he's a badass. Or Simon Pegg, because I think his sort of dry humor tragedy is totally the the tone that my life probably deserves <laughs> or it could be both or both you know, comedy a dramedy <laughs> and finally what is your own personal call to action right now i think my personal call to action right now is do less stuff and more of the right stuff i like that cool well Hal, this has been a pleasure interviewing you. Hal Werner is the global manager of digital marketing strategy at Mitel. You are a fellow Texan. I just moved here from California not too long ago. Fellow Texan. I'm a Texan now. (laughs) Thank you. And yeah, it it was a pleasure having you come on, talk about content strategy. I personally learned a lot. So I would love to give you a minute to just talk about what you're working on right now. Talk about Mitel and anything else that you want to kind of plug in there. So the big things we're working on right now, frankly, it's kind of distributed through the entirety of all of what we're doing in marketing is is actually a change that's going on in the industry, right? So the, the industry of business-to-business communications, the phone part, the collaboration part, the, the sort of call center, contact center part, it's all being wildly disrupted. And so there's, there's all kinds of SaaS providers that are getting into pieces of it. And so... We're a company that's actually been around for a long time. We have a lot of history as the traditional sort of hardware-based side of that. So what we're doing today is making the turn hard into the SaaS part of that, right? The much more cloud service type model. And that's not something that only has to happen on the business side, you know, the technology and sales and all that. But it's also something that comes very much into the marketing side as far as the type of content we build out, the types of terms we target, not even just the, the topics of the content that we attack, but also the actual form factors of content. We have to be more interactive, more video, more visual, in addition to providing that valuable text-based stuff. So I work on part of it. The whole team's working on different parts of it, right? And so I provide whatever I can to help us, help us make that turn. It's a big turn. We're all pulling levers to go the right direction. And as for your, your personal content, it's still... At Hal, HalWerner.com, is that correct? That's right. That's right. right. Now, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time guy here at Mitel, so I haven't dedicated quite as much time as I'd love to to blogging and blogging. But like I said, when I do have something valuable to say, I try and get it out there for everybody. Or, uh, or when I have something just a little entertaining that I think everyone else will like as well. Sure. All right. Follow him on LinkedIn. Are you on, are you on any other platforms? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. I've got it pretty much on, on lockdown with the brand. Twitter is at Hal Werner. Instagram is, is at Hal Werner, but that's not business related. That's just more my, my hobby photography. Got it. I'm on LinkedIn. You got my website. 
All right. Everybody follow him. Hal Werner, everybody. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me, Blake. And that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're a first-time listener or you've been at it since the beginning, please go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Wherever you get your podcasts, we've got you covered anywhere you want. 